From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. In some cases, the legacy of history is buried deep, requiring research, archaeology, or exploration to find it. In other cases, the legacy of history literally clouds our streams. On today's PreserveCast, we're blending modern environmentalism with a discussion of the legacy of mining in rural Ohio and how old damage is creating new vibrancy with Michelle Shively, the Director of Project Development for True Pigments, a project aimed at using pollution to give the world a fresh coat of paint. Make sure you have your painting clothes on because we're about to let the pigments fly on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, this is Nick. Real quick, before we get to this week's episode, want to ask you to make a quick five-star review of this PreserveCast. It makes a big difference and helps us reach new audiences. Thanks. Now, let's get back to this episode. Michelle Shively is the Director of Project Development for True Pigments. She's been working on remediating acid mine drainage for nearly a decade. True Pigments creates colors for a cleaner world. This proprietary technology turns pollution from historic coal mining into vibrant pigments for use in paint and other products. Michelle completed her Master's of Science in Environmental Studies at Ohio University with a concentration in environmental monitoring of impacted streams. She's worked as a watershed coordinator for Rural Action and led the Appalachian Ohio Watershed Council, a collaborative group of agencies, universities, nonprofits, soil and water conservation districts, and consulting companies that aims to support networking and mentoring opportunities for watershed groups and their partners in Appalachian, Ohio, and to provide a forum for a strong voice on regional water resource issues. She also served as the president for the Ohio Mineland Partnership, a group whose mission is to support and promote responsible reclamation and wise use of mine lands and affected streams by forming partnerships with the public, private industry, and natural resource organizations. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're joined by Michelle Shively, who is the Director of Project Development for True Pigments. Um, and this is a really interesting topic. I got the chance to meet uh, Michelle through uh, a cohort that we're in with the J.M. Kaplan Fund and the Innovation Prize there. Um, and as I was telling her before this interview started, I... I instantly thought once I met her and, and her team that were working on this, I was like, well, first, they have to be selected. And second, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. Um, and so I'm so excited to be able to bring Michelle and True Pigments um, to PreserveCast. But before we get started, um, we love to get to know the people that we're talking to. So where'd you grow up and what put you on the path to this career, which is a really unique sort of innovative entrepreneurial way of looking at environmentalism. Great. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me today, too. I'm glad to be here. Um, I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, um, and still work out of Ohio, but now I'm in the southeast corner. And I guess um, I've, my road to environmental restoration work began pretty early. My road to entrepreneurial work uh, started about maybe two years ago. <laughs> so I definitely um, got started pretty young, loving to be outside, always wanting to be in a creek somewhere, always chasing after fish and um, really just enjoying the outdoors, even though I grew up in the suburbs. But 
um, I was always drawn to that. So, you know, fast forward to college, I thought I wanted to do journalism, ended up at Ohio University in Southeast Ohio, and very quickly just got wrapped up into environmental issues um, in this region, abandoned mine land issues, seeing Orange Creeks, and just wondering, you know, what, what can I do and how can I get involved with this? So um, I switched my major to environmental studies, um, ended up going through at Ohio University with master's also, which is how I got started with Sunday Creek. And I'm really looking to see how we could innovatively clean up some of these mine discharge sites where, where abandoned mines, coal mines that dock the landscape, they're, they're just still spewing water. And, and um, you know, I have a, my family mostly is in Dayton, but my, one of my grandmas actually grew up in Athens County. So my great grandparents actually ran a, like a small mom and pop coal mine um, on their property. And, and so that was a pretty interesting kind of tie-in to now that I'm living here and, and doing the work I'm doing. Um, I think that that's a pretty neat way to kind of honor that legacy and be proud of that legacy, but also kind of take us to the next step where we're, we're looking to how we can actually um, bring life back to some of these, these streams and, and reclaim this legacy of, of physical degradation that is still left from coal mining. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of these things where history has legacies all around us and we see it on the landscape. We see it in our communities. You know, we were talking before the interview or before we, we clicked record, you know, there's, you know, the, the legacy of redlining in, in, in communities is, is obvious and apparent and, and still impacts us to this day, but actual physical environmental legacies of, of history aren't, aren't something we often see. I mean, it, it's, it changes the way the landscape is designed and things like that, but actually like still a negative physical impact of history um, is not something I think people are confronted with often um, or in as visceral a way as an orange stream. Um, and so I thought maybe, you know, you mentioned your, what part of Ohio you're in, but for people who are listening around the country who maybe haven't been to Ohio or people across the, the globe who've never been to the United States, what, what kind of communities are you working in? Where do you live? Kind of paint a picture of the place that you um, are, are trying to benefit and trying to restore. Mm -hmm. So I live in Athens County, Ohio, which is in the Southeast corner um, and I live very close to the site where we're going to be building um, our, our first big treatment facility. Um, we're about 30 miles from the Ohio River, so um, in the Appalachian region of Ohio. When people think about Ohio, if you're not from here, generally you're probably thinking a combination of Interstate 75 and 70, some cornfields, soybean fields, not maybe a whole lot going on. Um, but if that's what you're picturing, stop picturing that and picture West Virginia instead. <laughs> and then that's probably a little bit closer to the area that, that I'm working in. Um, we have smaller hills, but we still have them. And it's a very rural part of Ohio, um, heavily forested. Um, and it is where all of the coal mining historically and, and still currently happens um, in the state. We, um, you know, you mentioned the, the physical history and being able to see that environmental degradation through the orange streams. But a lot of our, 
our small communities out in the county really look historic also. You know, there are some actual ghost towns that are were old mining towns that are completely abandoned that you can go out, um, you know, drive out on some of these back roads and find some abandoned buildings, but not a whole lot left or abandoned train tracks. Um, you know, and, and sometimes it's really hard, especially some of the sites where we're actually doing reclamation work. They're they're so far out in the forest and there's no connection to the modern roads that sometimes it's hard. We have to stand there and, you know, one of the things I like to do is try to imagine what it actually looked like when, you know, hundreds or thousands of men were coming into the coal mine every day and to work and how it would be with the railroad still connecting and taking all of that coal on and, and just how much more connected our region was in during the heyday of coal mining, um, which would have been like the late 1800s, early 1900s in this area. So historic coal mining and still active today. Um, a lot of the communities, even though there are a handful of people who are still working in the mines, a lot of folks have to drive really far to, to work. Um, they're small towns. You know, we, we try to focus on the assets that we have in our community and how we can leverage those um, along with all of the wonderful people and all of, all of the things that we're so proud of as Appalachians. Um, being fiercely independent and um, self-reliant, resilient, um, hardworking, and innovative, all of these things, um, you know, that, that kind of characterize our region. Um, we like to look at those all in the positive, but the reality is, is that when folks from out of town come through some of these, these towns, all they're going to see is a rundown town and maybe not even have a hard time believing that some people actually still live in some of the houses, um, which people do. So some of these buildings, you know, they're old mining houses, they're company towns. And so you can actually see that history in the built landscape as well as the environment. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's an incredibly evocative place. My um, mother-in-law is, is from, from that part of Ohio. So I've gotten to see it just very briefly, but um, you're right. Um, I, w I went to school in West Virginia and it is, it is part and parcel of, of that Appalachian look, the feel and, and the, the extractive economy, right. Where they <laughs> pulled things out. Um, and and oftentimes sort of people were or you know expendable in that process um i'm curious just you know you mentioned the mines and getting to them and they, they're difficult to get to are we let's maybe do some definitions here are these coal mines that we're talking about and who owns them today and then we can talk a little bit more about like maybe the and maybe kind of leading into that like What's the scale of this problem? Um, you know, maybe we'll just talk about Appalachia to start and we can talk about national because I'm sure you at least have a sense for that. But like what kind of mines, who owns them and, and what's the scale of the issue? Do you have 10 mines that are a problem or do you have a thousand mines that are a problem? Mm -hmm. That's a great question because um, this is a problem that is it. It's a problem everywhere, not everywhere. You know, it's a problem all across the country, but it's not generally seen because a lot of these places are back in the woods now. The forest is kind of overtaking them or they're in sparsely populated areas, you know, in some of the, the mining states that are still really active today. 
So it's vast. Um, we're talking about, well, I'm talking about coal mining, even though other types of mining does have some of the same sorts of environmental issues with, um, you know, mine discharges and runoff into surface water, rivers, streams. Um, but I'll be talking specifically about coal mining. And in Ohio, um, most of our mining was completed, like I said, kind of late 1800s, early 1900s. And so anything that was mined before 1977 was actually not bound by any sort of reclamation laws on the federal level. So a lot of the problems that I'll be talking about deal specifically with mines that fall into that category. Um, so I'm not necessarily talking about active mining that's happening today because obviously those um, companies are are still being are being held to the laws that came after seventy seven and and they have to report to Ohio Department of Natural Resources and the EPA and the Office of Surface Mining and you know they're held to those sorts of of regulations both mining and things like the um, the Clean Water Act and, and sort of um, those kinds of of things that they have to stay um, under limits for discharge and that. In Ohio, there are, I mean, it's its not 10 mines. I wish it was. We have that many mines just in, in my 150 square mile watershed. Um, we're talking about thousands of mines across Appalachia. Um, in Ohio, there's 1,300 stream miles that are impacted by acid mine drainage, and, which is the acidic water that has lots and lots of heavy metals that are high concentrations of this stuff. So specifically in our area, we deal a lot with iron, aluminum, and manganese, which are three metals that are found in the coal seam underground. And what happens is when these mines are abandoned, they actually will start filling up with water. So when you get all of that water going down, you know, think about an underground mine. Think about the tunnels that would have gone into that. They would have been removing called room and pillar mining. So they would have removed coal but left pillars of coal to hold up the, the roof of the mine and, you know, roof of the mine surface of the ground. Um, they would have left those pillars, but they would have pulled out as much coal as they could have. So those are the rooms. And when they abandoned the mines, that void space would be filled with water and there's obviously oxygen down there too. And those are the three things that you actually need to start this string of chemical reactions that results in acidic water that has lots of iron, manganese, aluminum, has all of those things mixed up into it. Um, you need the, the oxygen, the water, and then pyrite, which is, you know, a lot of people might know pyrite is fool's gold. Um, pyrite is found within the coal seams in our area, and that's, that's what really jumpstarts those reactions. And how dangerous uh, a runoff or a chemical or, or a slurry or whatever you describe this as, you can tell I'm not actually the person with the, the master's in environmental science you are, um, but how does, how does, how dangerous is this stuff? It sounds bad. I, don't, I wouldn't want to touch it, but is it, is it, this, what is it doing to the people? Maybe that's a better way of putting it. What is it doing to the people of Appalachia, this kind of stuff that's coming out of these places? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And I get that all the time. And my, so the easy answer is that it's not necessarily hurting people's health in an obvious way. 
if it was, I feel like it would already be fixed because we would look at it as an environmental health problem or a public health problem versus just strictly an environmental problem. Um, You know, the real answer is that it is really detrimental to aquatic life. So thinking about fish, aquatic insects, crayfish, um, all of the things that should be living in these streams and rivers, they cannot survive in water that comes out of the ground with a pH of four and, you know, all of that iron. They cannot, and aluminum is a, is a pretty severe neurotoxin. So aluminum high, a, a site that had high concentration of aluminum would potentially be more of a, a public health issue. Um, if people were drinking the water for some reason or using the water um, in that way. But it is really, it's more of an environmental problem. You know, a lot of these streams that are having um, severe impacts from acid mine drainage, they're completely devoid of life. They're, you know, they're, they've been dead for almost 100 years, maybe longer. Wow. I mean, that's that's just incredible to think that, like, they've been dead that long too. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if this is seeping into groundwater, this can't be, I mean, as you say, with aluminum and manganese and all these different things, I mean, at the very least, it's not recommended to drink that kind of water. And if it gets into your well, I can't imagine, even if the EPA and under political pressure says, oh no, that's fine. I have to imagine that this is not recommended to drink and must be, I mean, are cancer rates higher in these communities than elsewhere? So our cancer rates in this part of Ohio are higher, but a lot of folks attribute that to things that are actually happening on the river. Um, there's a lot of uh, like um, it's like DuPont and plastic companies and and folks who are are like those big companies that are right on the river. Um, you know, a community right on the river Marietta is probably about 45 miles from from here. You know, at one point they were rated as having the worst air quality in the country, um, you know, and, and there's just a lot of industry along the river. It's, it's certainly, the Ohio is certainly a working river, um, but that is, there certainly are high cancer rates in this area. And, and Appalachia has pretty terrible health outcomes in general when you take us as, you know, as a region, as a subset and compare it to the averages nationally. Um, you know, when you look at the states, West Virginia is actually the only state that's completely, the whole state is considered Appalachian. So, you know, you have to kind of look at us as a region because sometimes I think we get lost in our state statistics. So who actually, maybe just go back here a second before we, when I want to talk about true pigments, we might take a break before we get there, but who um, actually owns these places? So I know you said in 77, we get legislation that at least sets up a framework, which if you know anything about West Virginia and places that have mountaintop removal is arguable whether or not that framework really works. But we have a framework now for at least reclamation and and a process. But prior to that, we didn't. So are these just abandoned? Is it owned by the state? And And that's why a nonprofit like yours is engaged in the process? Or is it unclear sometimes who owns it? Who... Or is it case by case and it's just crazy and all over the place? I'd say the latter. It's case by case, (laughs) a little all over the place. Um, You know, a lot of the land has ended up um, in private ownership. Um, Some of it is still owned by the coal companies. Um, Several of the, the older coal companies that aren't active anymore 
they still have land holdings. Um, most of the time, they're not, they're not doing anything with that property. It's just sitting there. Um, but we work with private landowners as well who purchase the property afterwards. Um, we have a bunch of projects um, that are actually on Wayne National Forest lands because we have the only national forest in the state of Ohio is, is on our area. Um, some of it is owned by the state, by the Department of Natural Resources. It kind of fell into state ownership. Um, so the, the land ownership is varied. Um, the thing that is, is not varied is the responsibility for the reclamation. And that just falls to no one, which is where the nonprofit, like I work for, uh, Rural Action and, and True Pigments, and the state and the Office of Surface Mining, that, that's kind of where um, those agencies and organizations like mine step in to, to take on that reclamation work because there just isn't anyone responsible and there's only limited funding um, to be able to throw at some of these projects. And it, just to give you a scope of the problem nationally, um, the Office of Surface Mining has an abandoned mine land program that keeps track of all of the abandoned mine land issues in every state that has historic mining. And since 1977, when they established that, this um, it's called SMACRA, the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act, and that was the law that then required reclamation. Every coal company that was actively mining coal from that point till now pays a small severance tax for every ton of coal and that money goes into this national trust fund that's kept at the federal level and then dispersed out to all of the states that have historic mining issues. Since 1977, they have spent 5.7 billion with a B dollars on abandoned mine land work in the states, but there is still 10.6 billion with a B of unfunded AML restoration work that's, that's inventory. And that doesn't even include all of it because um, some of the stuff is still uninventoried or you have new problems coming out. You know, one of the things that we deal with is subsidences because you think about all that void space, you know, if you're thinking about a vast area of underground mines, it's like Swiss cheese down under there, under the ground. And so there's certainly areas where the, the surface gets weak, that rooftop of the mine, and it just will collapse on itself. And so there's, even though we're, we're uh, some cases, 100 years past mining, some of these sites are still producing new problems every year. Um, and with the acid mine drainage, that's something that we see that eventually it's probably going to level off in each mine, but it still could be discharging for thousands of years. Um, certainly way beyond any of our last lifetimes. I mean, the, the shortest time span I've seen, one of our hydrogeologists that works at the university did for one of my mines was 600 years. And that's the, that's the shortest that I've seen um, for, for some of ours in our area. Um, so, you know, you're thinking about a, a huge problem nationally and just a long problem. You know, if, if the stream is run orange for 100 years, that is people's entire, entire lifetimes. They've never known anything different than that Orange Creek. You know, you think about the impact on people and it might not, well, that, you know, thinking about it, I think that water might not kill you, but it does impact you. If you, if the stream that runs through your town runs orange and no one cares, 
And if the buildings that are around on Main Street are falling down and no one cares, that impacts you and that impacts the community. And I think that those are things that are really hard to, to quantify and to explain. Um, it's something that when you visit places, you can feel. You kind of feel how that could add to, um, you know, just it's hard to have community pride when the surrounding areas of, in your community looks like that. Yeah. And, and I mean, you're, you're kind of getting into the, the psychology of place and, and how, um, that can be so detrimental. Um, why don't we take a quick break here? We've identified the problem and now we're going to come up with a pretty cool and innovative and entrepreneurial solution. And we're going to talk about true pigments and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. 100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit ballotandbeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Anna Baker Maxwell, Eliza Lilly Derringer Kelly, and Mary Jane Clark Howard, three women who voted in 1908 in Still Pond, Maryland, read by Megan Bacco, Director of Communications at Preservation Maryland. Anna Baker Maxwell, Mary Jane Clark Howard, and Eliza Lilly Derringer Kelly of Still Pond, Maryland. On Election Day in 1908, 12 years before the passage of the 19th Amendment, three women showed up at the polls in the village of Still Pond, Maryland. On Maryland's eastern shore and about 60 miles across the Chesapeake Bay from Maryland's state capital in Annapolis, the farming village of Still Pond wrote in its charter a guarantee that women taxpayers had the right to vote in all municipal elections. In 1908, 14 women registered, including two African-American women. Three of the women, along with 72 men, showed up to vote on election day. The three women were Mary Jane Clark Howard, 69-year-old farmer's widow for 24 years and a mother of 10. She told a reporter that she felt very foolish voting, but wanted to see what she had been missing. And Anna Baker Maxwell and Eliza Lilly Derringer Kelly were prominent members of the community. Eliza Lilly Derringer Kelly was also the granddaughter of Henry Derringer, the Philadelphia gunsmith who invented the pocket-sized pistol. And what of the 11 registered women who stayed home? The local news reported that some were deterred by a downpour that day, others by household chores and cooking, and one by a fussy baby. A post-election editorial by the Baltimore Sun did not commend the three female voters who showed up that day, but instead flattered the women who stayed home. It read, the women, most of them, have something far more important to occupy their time than politics. Men can attend to the voting, but they cannot attend to the baby and other duties, which require the greater ability of women. It would take another 12 years before the country would push past such exclusionary traditional thinking and ratify the 19th Amendment. Voters Mary Jane Clark Howard 
and Eliza Lilly Dallinger Kelly did not live to see their state and their nation take that step forward, but in their community of Still Pond, Maryland, their votes counted. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast, and today we are joined by Michelle Shively, who is the Director of Project Development for True Pigments. And before we took our break, we were talking about um, really just the scope of this problem, the the challenges associated with it from a public health perspective, from an environmental perspective, from a psychological perspective. Um, something has to be done about this, and the scale of the problem is is too big um, for even the the limited resources that we have. Um, to tackle. So how do you deal with this and perhaps get it so that it can pay for itself? And uh, Michelle and team have come up with something that's pretty cool. So what is True Pigments? What's the idea here and how is it being deployed? True Pigments is a social enterprise that was created by Rural Action, which is the nonprofit that um, I've been working for for the last 10 years doing watershed restoration. And we have partnered with an engineering professor, an art professor, an artist, and um, the state and federal agencies to create an innovative technology that can actually remove the iron, which is is the biggest issue in our area, um, remove that iron out of the mine discharge water and in such a way that we can process it into a really high quality pigment product um, and then clean. So by taking the iron out, then we can also fix the, um, the acidic problem. Also, we can get that pH back up. So we're pulling out the iron. We're making this high quality pigment to be able to sell that as a commodity. And then we're putting clean water back into the stream, which solves our environmental issue. And it's, it's a game changer. Like, like I said, I've been, been doing this, this work, um, AML and, and acid mine drainage restoration work for 10 years. And the biggest issue that we've had is that at some of these huge discharges where there's so much water and there's so much iron, it's just overwhelming for most of the traditional methods that we use to treat AMD. Um, for example, we are, are getting ready to build our first full-scale treatment facility at the True Town Discharge in Athens County. And it is the largest AMD discharge from an underground mine in the state of Ohio. And AMD, just for people listening, is acid mine drainage, right? Yes. Okay, yes. just making sure, just making sure. I try to sprinkle it in every once in a while, but it is such a mouthful. No, it's fine. Now that we've defined it, you can go, go back to go back to your acronym, but we just want to make sure everybody listening knows. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. So we have um, at that site, imagine a thousand gallons per minute of acidic water just spewing up out of the ground and going into a creek. And that's, that's what we're looking at at this site. So, um, you know, a thousand for people who don't talk in, in gallons per minute and cubic feet per second, imagine a thousand milk jugs, <laughs> a thousand milk jugs of water coming out of the ground every single minute. And with that, it brings 6,000 pounds 
of iron every single day that goes into this creek. And so think about that for a minute. It's over 2 million pounds every year. It's, it's a huge amount of iron and it's completely killed the stream that it flows into. Um, so we've been looking at this because a lot of these sites have been the highest priority in the state for 40 plus years. Um, you know, this particular site has a pretty interesting history because it was actually capped as, as a pumping station for an old mine and it was sealed back in the 60s. And then in 1983, the steel busted. And so this water where there had been no water at all, there's been no channel, no stream, nothing. It's just in the middle of a farm field. This seal busted out and then, you know, a small geyser of water started coming out of the ground and then which, you know, eventually kind of settled out, but is still act, you know, consistently discharging at that thousand gallons per minute. Now, where is all that water coming from? Is that is this is groundwater that is seeping into this and then picking up all the sediment and, and these the heavy metals and then pouring out of there? Is that how that works? Or is there a, a, a you know, a spring or what, how, how is there so much water coming out of this one place? Well, it's a huge mine pool. So the, the area that is draining out of this one discharge site, we've mapped it out underground and it's 23 square miles of old abandoned mine tunnels underground. Um, and what happens is water always finds a way down, right? It's, it's, and it always takes the, the path of least resistance. So it, you know, there are even just like fissures in the ground where water can seep down into the mine pool. Um, in a lot of cases, though, there are subsidence holes where the, the roof of the mine has actually caved in and, and lots of water makes its way down into the mine pool. Um, there's also a lot of entries, old entry points into the mines that are still open that haven't been closed. Um, so water can make it through. It, it's, it's mostly, you know, runoff and surface water that is finding its way into the mine pool because it's not connected to the aquifer, you know, the deeper groundwater in any way. It's, it's just in the mines themselves, um, in those old tunnels. And, but you think about 23 square miles of land that's draining, you know, that, that ends up a lot of water and it's been very consistent, um, We've done a lot of monitoring where we've been able to measure the mine, the like the height of the mine pool, and be able to show that it it really doesn't change. There's some slight seasonality to it, but it's pretty consistent year round. Um, so you're building a treatment facility that is. How is it going to grab what's going to become the pigment? Is it at this source in this farm field where the geyser broke? you're putting something that is capturing that stuff before it comes out so that the water that passes through, am I describing this right in the most, in the most basic of terms? You are. Yes. <laughs> and then and so I'll just add that. It's yeah. Really yeah. Keep, and, and, and please, you don't have to be as basic as I'm describing it, but I'm just <laughs> trying to get at that. Is that, is that how it works? And then I guess maybe jumping to this, you know, and, and maybe in your answer, they're jumping to that pigment side is how much pigment are you going to create? And you know, where can people buy this paint? I want a can. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're, we are, we're building a big plant in the middle of a farm field and it's right on the banks of Sunday Creek. It will look more like a, a small community wastewater treatment plant 
than it will any sort of AMD treatment that we've built in the past. Um, because I mean, kind of the, the concept is similar. You're, you're taking a large amount of water and you're trying to remove some solid waste from it. It's just, in our case, it's iron and not, not the other. Um, but it, it will work a lot like a wastewater treatment plant. The key to our innovation in this is the, the parameters, keeping the water and keeping all of the, the chemical parameters at the right levels so that we can precipitate that iron out and harvest that iron out of the water so that it is that high quality pigment. Because that process actually happens by itself. You know, that, that happens as soon as water comes out of the underground mines and is, is at the surface. As pH of the water goes up and becomes less acidic, gets a higher pH, that actually triggers an, the kind of the opposite reaction of the iron and the other metals falling out of solution. That's why you see the orange on the bottom of the string banks. Um, that's actually iron precipitate, that iron that we're trying to capture, and it's just down on the bottom of the stream. Um, what we do with our traditional modes of treatment is, is really just kind of do the same thing, but add, add limestone or add some alkalinity so that we can speed up those reactions and get the iron to precipitate where we want it. This true pigments technology takes that one step further and actually is, is utilizing um, a very specific process so that the iron is usable afterwards. I mean, none of us started out trying to make paint here. We were just trying to figure out how to, to solve the problem of these huge mine discharge sites that were too expensive to treat with any of our traditional methods um, and would have, would have had a huge annual operating cost with them. And we just couldn't, nobody could sign on to that. I mean, I, it, we're a nonprofit. Um, the state isn't going to sign on to, to millions of dollars. Um, over the next 30 years to operate. So, you know, being able to, to pull this out as a high quality commodity and sell that at, at a, enough of a profit where, where we can actually pay for the treatment itself and have some left over that, you know, as a social enterprise, we, we are a company, but we're owned by the nonprofit. So um, our goal is to funnel all of our profit back into more watershed restoration work. Um, right now, we're looking at um, at full capacity. We'd be producing two mil over to a little over two million pounds of the iron pigment each year. Um, Off and of it's one plant. One plant, yeah. And that's the exciting thing is that you know once we prove we've proved that this works at the pilot scale. Um, we've had two test facilities, and we've proved that it works. But you know, people are hesitant. It's going to cost eight point five million dollars to build this plant. So. Um, you know, we, we need to prove that it works at the full scale at True Town first. But once we, we show that, we're really excited about the opportunity to replicate it across Appalachia. Um, you know, there, there are lots of large site discharge sites across the rest of the Appalachian states and, and in Ohio where this could be utilized. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's such a critical way of doing this where you know, as you say, the states are and the feds are un unwilling or unlikely to just keep pouring money into things like this. And so if you can find a unique way to make it pay for itself, I mean, this is this uh, is is just really I mean, I think it's it's important for people to see, even if they're not interested or they don't have an, an acid mine issue in their backyard, thinking about solving challenges by being entrepreneurial 
um, mm-hmm. is so important because it, it can create sustainable funding streams for something like this. So I'm curious, um, what uh, do you have paint companies that you're working with that you can mention? And or if someone wants to go out and buy uh, this type of paint, um, you know, which to me, it seems like this would be the paint of choice for any environmentalist in the country, right? You you have yeah. to buy paint that has been tinted with true pigment um, because it is the only sustainable paint that is cleaning Appalachia's water. Um, where Where and when will you be able to get it? Yeah, so we're working with Gamblin Artist Colors out of Portland, Oregon, and they do um, high-quality artist-grade oil paints. So we've already had our our first kind of foray into the market was with Gamblin. They released a box set back in March that has three different colors of oil paints that are tinted with or are created with our pigment. So we can currently make three different colors. Um, the first is a um, kind of like a yellow ochre color that they made into a, a brown paint. And then we have the rust red, which is, I think, what most people are probably traditionally thinking um, when I'm talking about this. And then the third color is this really pretty earth violet. Um, they called it iron violet. And so it's kind of a mauve color. Um, it's got that, that purpley uh, look to it. And all three are really beautiful. Um, we have that box set available. It's currently out of stock on our website, but if you go to truepigments.com, uh, you can, there's a, there's a place there that you can actually put in your email so we can let you know when we have it back in stock, but we're hoping to have it back in stock before Christmas so we can get, um, some folks have, have wanted to buy it for Christmas presents for the artists in their lives. Um, and, and currently that's, um, our only product that's out on the market because we aren't, um, we don't have the full-scale facility built quite yet. So um, until that time, we're, we've only been able to do kind of small batch things. But once we're at full-scale, we hope to be able to sell to some of the large paint companies. Um, in addition to paint, this pigment, iron oxide pigment, the market's huge. Um, it's used in the U.S. There's about 240,000 tons that are used every year. Um, and about half of that goes into actually concrete, colored concrete and other building materials. And then it's like 35% of the market is paint and coatings. Um, and then small amounts of fertilizer for agricultural use, cosmetics, um, other kind of industrial uses. Um, you know, and even some dog foods um, or animal feed um, has iron oxide in it. So. There, there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, we're really, I'm excited about, um, like you said, having people paint their houses with with True Pigments paint. And, uh, you know, I, I, do you, I don't know if you know um, anything about the, in Sweden and Finland, um, there's a color called Falu Red. I hope I'm saying that right. I think it's Falu. And so it's essentially like, I, sh- I should say, like using iron oxide for paint is not, a new idea. This is, we did not come up with that, right? Um, you know, you think about the oldest cave paintings, they're all made of iron oxide pigments and that red color. Um, so back, I think it was the 16th century was the first time that this Falu red color was used. But if you think about Finland and Sweden, there are a lot of red houses, you know, and, and, and so it's a traditional, uh, Finnish color. And, um, you know, in kind of why I love the history of it is, is that traditionally it wasn't used by 
the wealthy people because it was really cheap because people were just in, in Finland, in Sweden, I think it was copper mines that they were actually using the tailings from. And so it was people could get the stuff really cheap and they made their own paint. And, and so I kind of love that because it's like of the people and it feels very Appalachian to me. <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Um, but there's also a company called Environoxide out of Pennsylvania. And they are also using um, mine, mine water to and harvesting the iron oxide out of that and, and selling um, on a commercial level to Hoover Colors. Um, so their process is very different than ours. Um, they use a more passive system. Um, and ours is, is more like a wastewater treatment plant, very active, where water's constantly flowing through and we're, we're pulling iron out constantly. Um, where theirs is, is more just kind of letting it settle and then harvesting all of it at one time. But, um, you know, it's, it's exciting to me to get these kinds of products out on the market because I think that, um, you know, there, there, there's the people want that people, it's important to people. And, um, you know, there's, there's so much going on in the world that I think that if you can feel good about the products that you're using in your life, if you can feel good about the paint that you're putting on your house, like that's, that's something that's worth something. And yeah, um, I was just going to say, what was the last time you felt, what was the last time you felt good about painting your, I mean, you feel good about painting, but what was the last (laughs) time you felt good about the paint that you bought? Right. right? And this gives you an opportunity to do that. And And I just love from the preservation perspective, which is really why I wanted to have you on here is sort of connecting the dots between why this product and this project matters to the preservation community is here's a way when we go to repaint things and we, we think about the sustainable rehabilitation of historic structures that we should be thinking about, um, you know, buying these types of products when they become commercially available and, and literally painting our buildings with the historic legacy, um, of, you know, this, this, sort of mistake that we made in the way that we treated the environment, but we can use that to, to save old buildings and, and invest in that psychology of place that we talked about. I mean, it's just, it's such a perfect um, circle um, that you guys have pulled together. And that's why we're so glad to have you with us here today. So you mentioned um, and I, that where people can find out more about you, but um, maybe give you another plug here. So if people want to learn more about True Pigments or uh, there's a, a paint company executive listening who wants to buy uh, two million pounds of your pigments every year, um, where can they find you and True Pigments and where can they learn more and where can they get on the uh, holiday uh, uh, wait list for your paint? Definitely. So you can go to www.truepigments.com. Um, all of my contact info is, is on um, the website there. And we do have a store up there. And I believe that the link um, to put your name on to be notified when we have the paint back in stock is on that page. Good. Well, we're probably going to be putting together, we do a holiday gift guide every year. And so we will make sure uh, that that you're on the holiday gift guide, particularly if you're awesome. So um, before we leave, uh, and this has been really fun and just so illuminating and interesting to talk to um, someone with a totally different perspective than a lot of the preservationists and historians and authors we talk to. Um, but before we leave, your favorite historic place or site? That's a good question. So I think I mentioned I'm from the Dayton area. So I I really love all of the aviation heritage sites that are around the Dayton area, Huffman Prairie and the old Wright Brothers Cycle Shop. And 
Um, part of that is is a personal reason. Um, I am distantly related to the Wright brothers um, on my grandma's side of the family. So they're, how is this? Their third great-grandmother is my sixth great-grandmother. So we've always had that as a, you know, like a, a small point of pride in our family. So I think growing up, my dad was always fascinated by aviation and um, and that. So we, we went to a lot of those sites growing up and I, I still um, really appreciate those and, and find them as an inspiration. Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, talk about uh, inspiration. There must must run in the, the distant family there, <laughs> the, the entrepreneurism and uh, the Wright brothers, I'm sure would be very proud um, and uh, a fantastic way to end a really great interview. Um, Michelle, it's been such a pleasure not only to get to know you through Kaplan, but to get the chance to talk with you a little bit about this. And so looking forward to buying my first gallon of uh, True Pigments paint sometime in the near future. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.